0: Well, hey there, podcast listeners, this is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. Thanks so much for listening in. Um, I was delighted to be back at church this weekend uh, for worship on Sunday and also to be preaching in the pulpit. The sermon you're about to listen to is based on Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. It's the parable of the wedding banquet. It's a challenging story about a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son And um, the children uh, read Scripture, Let Us in Worship by Reading Scripture on Sunday morning, and they actually read the Lucan version, uh, which is a little bit different. And um, so you'll see that that's reflected in my sermon, but um, it is a wonderful and challenging story, too, about who is welcome at the table who's invited to the feast, who's on the quote-unquote guest list. Hopefully it's helpful to you and your own spiritual life, and as you think about what it means to be people of faith as we try to invite others to the, the, this um, grand banquet that God is throwing. Um, as usual, would love for you to head over to WilliamsburgBaptist.com to find out more about what we've got going on in the life of the church, or head over to Instagram or Facebook. And uh, if you have prayer concerns or would just like to catch up with me, you can just shoot me an email at pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you this week. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and salvation. Amen. I have been a part of enough weddings now in some form or fashion to know that the wedding guest list is almost always complicated in some way or another. I see enough responses from the congregation to know that you know that this is true. There's either too many people the couple wants to invite, so they have the A-list, and then the B-list, and then the C-list, and if enough of the A-list doesn't get invited, you know, yeah, that's right, <laughs> then you invite the B-list, some of us have been there, and then you invite the C-list. Or the parents of the couple want to invite certain couple, people that the couple doesn't want to invite, and that creates conflict. Or if so-and-so is going to be there, this other person definitely can't be there. (laughs) This is apparently resonating this morning. I did, I got an invitation to a wedding in the mail this past week. Perfect timing for the scripture passage. And I'm glad, personally, that we made the cut for the guest list. Especially since I'm officiating the wedding. And so... Weddings are a special and sacred days, and the wedding banquet in today's parable is no different. I wonder if we can take a moment to sort of set the scene and use our imaginations. If you're willing, I wonder if you'll just close your eyes with me for a minute and imagine the wedding in this parable. I know that's a dangerous thing for a pastor to invite the congregation to do, to close your eyes, but it'll just be a minute, okay? I want you to imagine the fanciest wedding you can. This one is for a king's son, so nothing will be held back. Use all of your senses. What are the sights and sounds and smells and tastes? It may be helpful to start in a room that looks much like the great hall at Hogwarts from Harry Potter. Candles and torches illuminate the scene and a warm fire blazes in the hearth. Festive stringers hang from overhead, and fancy food is piled high on fine platters, and drinks are overflowing in silver goblets. Everyone is dressed in their fanciest garments and robes in honor of the couple and the king. The scent of roasting oxen and fatted calves fills the room, as does lively music, playing and enlivening the whole affair. There's laughter and joy, and the servants stand at attention, ready to meet every need. You can open your eyes back up and nudge your neighbor if they're snoring, please. Weddings should and could be joyful occasions. They're pivotal events in the life of not only a couple, but a community. When I think back to my own wedding, I can picture so many aspects of it, and I can remember almost everyone there. I can even remember where people were sitting. For some of us, weddings are the be-all, end-all events of a lifetime. Admittedly, for others, they can be really hard events to attend for whatever reason. Sometimes tensions run high, expectations cloud judgment, and create conflict with loved ones. But weddings become a central metaphor throughout Scripture. The image of the wedding banquet imagines God's messianic banquet in the age to come, and the celebration and culmination of God's dream for the world. It is such a vital image that Jesus even begins his public ministry in the Gospel of John by turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And so perhaps it's not surprising that Jesus employs the image of this wedding banquet to teach his listeners what the kingdom of heaven is like. For those of you who are following along in the Pew Bibles, here's how the parable begins. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they did not come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is prepared. I butchered the oxen and the fattened calf. Now everything's ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away, some to their fields and others to their businesses. This parable, the story that Jesus tells, is shocking on a number of levels. First and foremost, can you imagine a king throwing a wedding and people turning down the invitation? It's shameful. It threatens to humiliate both a king and his son alike. The wealthy nobles whom the king invites, because that's who a king would invite. They each give everyday excuses to miss the wedding. They're tending their fields or their businesses or whatever, never mind the fact that they have managers and servants who could look after these things. There's nothing more important than the king's wedding feast. It's incomprehensible that they would miss it. And of course, a wedding is not just a solitary event. It's something for the entire community. And the wedding of a king's son more so, and so it needs people to gather and witness it and to bring their joy and join in the celebration. And so the king takes an extraordinary and radical step in response. He says, well, we have a wedding ready. We have a feast ready. All we need now are warm bodies to fill the seats. And so they fling the doors of the great hall open and go into the streets and compel everyone they can find to come into the wedding hall, both good and bad, my translation says, and the wedding hall fills with guests, not the wealthy elite, not the lords and ladies and wealthy merchants you'd expect at a royal wedding, but the nobodies, people who could never have dreamed that they'd have a seat at the table. Peasants and artisans, disabled beggars, itinerant teachers, dirty farmers, cash strapped merchants, underemployed day laborers, and shepherds. The doors are flung open in a scene that would surely unnerve prim and proper mismanners. All manner of people come to sit at the table together for this royal wedding. This is just not how things were done. And once they get to the wedding feast, there seems to be no rhyme or reason about who's going to sit next to whom. And so we have, gasp, men sitting next to women, which would have been unacceptable in the first century. Slaves rubbing elbows with landowners, children squirming next to goat herders and running underfoot of the king's own son. It is an etiquette disrupting and even world inverting moment. I toyed with the idea of asking you all to get up and move seats or move pews at this point and find someone that you've never sat next to. And I knew the extroverts would love it and the introverts would hate it. <laughs> but just imagine for a minute what that would feel like. It's disorienting, right? Now, the most common ways of interpreting this parable are extremely anti-Jewish. In fact, I googled this parable, and the top hits all relayed this common interpretation that the original wedding guests are the Jewish people, Israel, and that they have rejected God's claims, and so in turn they are excluded from God's banquet and love. And this has been a dangerous and damaging interpretation for so many reasons throughout history. But if we step back, we, we see that this takes on different levels of meaning here. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. The narrative lectionary skipped us over the Palm Sunday entry in Matthew chapter 21. We'll actually come back to it in a few weeks on Palm Sunday. But the first thing that Jesus does once he arrives to this holy city, the city of power for the religious and political elite, is go to the temple and criticize the religious rulers. When he tells this parable, he's speaking to the religious establishment, the chief priests and the elders, the Baptist pastors and Methodist bishops and religious power brokers, people with master's degrees and even PhDs in biblical studies. He's speaking to the religious establishment, then and now. And what does he say? You think you know who belongs at the table. You think you have the right to say who's in and who's out. But you have turned down God's divine invitation and radical hospitality and revolutionary love. You just don't get it. God's table is open to all people. Not just for the wealthy or the holy or the people of one particular theological persuasion or sexuality or gender identity or voting preference. Not to the people who think they've all got it all figured out or at least pretend like they've got it all figured out. It's open to the man experiencing homelessness or the person confined to the wheelchair the person struggling with addiction, or the parent who just got the terminal diagnosis, the woman with a child conceived out of wedlock, the neurodivergent sibling, the student struggling because they feel like they aren't as smart as everyone else in class, and they fear it's just a matter of time before everyone else finds out, the trans child who just wants to belong, And at this table, it may not be surprising for us that different genders are sitting next to each other, but it may be surprising to find that there are Baptists sitting next to Catholics, and Virginia Tech fans sitting next to UVA fans. (laughs) You guys are punchy today. It's good, it's good and black and brown and white folks sitting side by side, and Republicans are chatting next to Democrats and Libertarians and Sopranos next to basses, and yoga instructors are trying to make conversations with Star Wars geeks. (laughs) It's awkward and unexpected and diverse and beautiful all at the same time. One of the things that I love the most about my memories of going home to visit my granny's house for meals and holidays is that there always seemed to be someone unexpected there. This was common when Beth and I were dating, and early on in our marriage, we'd go home and walk in and see all of our familiar family members, and food would be piled high at the dinner table. And Beth would invariably lean over and nudge me and say, who's that person? And I'd be like, I have no idea. (laughs) Maybe they were dating one of my cousins or were a friend of a friend or just someone from down the road who needed a family at the holidays. But what I loved so much about the sentiment and the way that my granny cultivated sense of family was there's this overwhelming sense that there's always room for one more at the table. And rather than excluding the newcomers, you just build a bigger table where everyone scoots in a little bit closer. In my case, the apple didn't fall from the tree because Beth always ends up teasing me by calling me an includer. I'm always trying to think of who I can invite in addition to all the other people I've already invited. I once issued a blanket invitation to something like 70 people on social media to come eat dinner at our house. And of course, there was no way they were all going to fit, but I invited them anyway. Many of you know that I grew up in the Methodist church, and I still hold dearly to my formative experiences in my home church in rural Virginia. But lots of congregations within the Methodist tradition are talking about leaving the denomination right now over matters of sexuality and fear. And it's heartbreaking for me, it has been heartbreaking for me these last few weeks to have conversations with loved ones and watch my home tradition splinter apart while I'm watching from the Baptist fold, which doesn't have any problems at all. And for the life of me, I struggle to believe that the people who are leaving, I struggle to wonder, like, are they reading the same Bible as I am? Today's passage has nothing specifically to say about sex or sexuality or gender identity or political or theological persuasion, but it does speak to the very heart of the gospel. It speaks to the radical grace that David talked about so eloquently in his sermon last week. That the people that you least expect to welcome to the table are in fact welcome at the table. Period. You are welcome at this table. Your loved one who has been rejected by their family is welcome at this table. Your coworker who votes differently than you do is welcome at this table. This idea is grounded in God's radical love and acceptance that God has shown each of us. And it is revolutionary for this world. Friends, God is in the business of preparing a feast for all. And your name is on the guest list. And that is good news. And as much as it might shock you, you too are invited to join the celebration. We, the religious establishment, may be off doing our thing, thinking that we're all important, thinking that we get to decide who's in and out, but while we're off doing all that, all the joy is happening right here at this table. And my hope is that sooner or later they'll wise up and join in. My hope is that one day they'll realize the guest list is longer than they think it is. And it's longer than I think it is. and your name is on it. Hannah, your name is on it. Bill, your name is on it. And Alex, Chris, David, Colleen, Kim, and my name is on it. And there are more names than we can even begin to count. And there are plenty of names that will surprise us still. And friends, that is good news. So who's hungry? Julian already said it, but I know I am. Will you join me at the table? There's plenty of room. Amen. Amen.